Chapter Thirteen of the Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. Two weeks of very hard work and little sleep passed as Green learned the duties of a top salesman. He hated to go aloft, but he found that being up so high had its advantages. It gave him a chance to catch a few winks now and then. There were many crow's nests where musket men were stationed during a fight. Green would slip down into one of these and go to sleep at once. His foster son, Grisquetter, would stand watch for him, waking him if the foretop captain was coming through the rigging toward them. One afternoon Gris's whistle startled Green out of a sound sleep. However, the captain stopped to give another sailor a lecture. Unable to go back to sleep, Green watched a herd of hoobers take to their hoofs at the approach of the bird. These diminutive equines, beautiful with their orange bodies and black and white manes and fetlocks, sometimes formed immense herds that must have numbered in the hundreds of thousands. So quick were they that they looked like a bobbing sea of flashing heads and gleaming hoofs stretching clear to the horizon. To stretch to the horizon was something on this planet. The plain was the flattest green had ever seen. He could scarcely believe that it ran unbroken for thousands of miles. But it did, and from his high point of view he could see in a vast circle. It was a beautiful sight. The grass itself was tall and thick-bodied, about two feet high, and a sixteenth of an inch through. It was bright green, brighter than earthly grass, almost shiny. During rainy seasons, he was told, it would blossom with many tiny white and red flowers and give a pleasing perfume. Now, as Green watched, something happened that startled him. Abruptly, as if a monster mowing machine had come along the day before, the high grass ended and a lawn began. The new grass seemed to be only an inch high, and the lawn stretched at least a mile wide and as far ahead of the bird as he could see. "'What do you think of that?' he asked Amra's son. Grisquetter shrugged. "'I don't know. The sailors say that it is done by the Wooroo, an animal the size of a ship, that only comes out at night. It eats grass, but it has the nasty temper of a dire-dog and will attack and smash a roller as if it were made of cardboard. "'Do you believe that?' Green said, watching him closely. Grisquetter was an intelligent lad in whom he hoped to plant a few seeds of skepticism. Perhaps some day those seeds might flower into the beginnings of science. "'I do not know if the story is true or not.' It is possible, but I've met nobody who has ever seen a wooroo. And if it comes out only at night, where does it hide during the daytime? There is no hole in the ground large enough to conceal it. Very good, said Green, smiling. Happily, Grisquetter smiled back. He worshipped his foster father and nursed every bit of affection or compliment he got from him. Keep that open mind, said Green. Neither believe nor disbelieve until you have solid evidence one way or another. And keep on remembering that new evidence may come up that will disprove the old and firmly established. He smiled wryly. 
I could use some of my own advice. I, for instance, had at one time absolutely refused to put any credence in what I have just seen with my own eyes. I put the story down as merely another idle story of those who sail the grassy seas. But I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps there couldn't be an animal of some kind like the Wuru. Both were silent for a while as they watched the animals race off like living orange rivers. Overhead the birds wheeled in their hundreds of thousands of numbers. They too were beautiful and even more colorful than the Hoobers. Occasionally one lit in the rigging in a burst of dazzling feathers and a fury of melodious song or raucous screeches. Look, said the boy, eagerly pointing, a grass cat. He's been hiding, waiting to catch a hooper, and now he's afraid he'll be trampled to death by them. Green's gaze followed the other's finger. He saw the long-legged, tiger-striped body loping desperately ahead of the thundering hoofs. It was completely closed in a pocket of the orange-maned beasts. Even as Green saw him, the sides of the pocket collapsed and the big cat disappeared from sight. If he remained alive, he would do so through a miracle. Suddenly, Grizzquatter cried, "'Gods!' "'What's the matter?' cried Green. "'On the horizon, a sail. It's shaped like a ving sail.' Others saw it, too. The ship ran with shouts, a trumpeter blew battle-stations, Miran's voice rose above those of others as he bellowed through a megaphone. Chaos dissolved into order and purpose as everybody went to his appointed place. The animals, children, and pregnant women were marshaled into the hold. The gun-crews began unloading barrels of powder with a crane from a hatch. Musketmen swarmed up the rigging. The entire topmast crew tumbled aloft and took their places. As Green was already in his, he had some leisure to observe the whole outlay of preparations for fight. He watched Amra hurriedly give her children a kiss, make sure they'd all gone below, then began tearing strips for cloth for bandages and of wadding for muskets. Once she looked up and waved at him before turning back to her task. He waved back and got a severe reprimand from the top captain for breaking discipline. "'An extra watch for you, Green, after this is over.' The earthman groaned and wished that the martinet would fall off and break every bone in his body. If he lost any more sleep, the day wore on as the strange ship came closer. Another sail appeared behind it, and the crew grew even tenser. From all appearances they were being pursued by vings. Vings usually went in pairs. Then there was the shape of the sails, which were narrower at bottom than at top, and there was the long, low, streamlined hull and the over-large wheels. Nevertheless, discipline was somewhat relaxed for a time. The pets and children were allowed to come up, and meals were prepared by the women. Even when the swifter craft came close enough so that the color of the sails was seen to be scarlet, thereby confirming their suspicions of the stranger's identity, battle stations weren't recalled. Miron estimated that by the time the vings were within cannon range, night would fall. "'This is what they hate and what we love,' he said, pacing back and forth, fingering his nose-ring and blinking nervously his one good eye. It'll be an hour before the big moon comes up. 
Not only that, it looks as though clouds may arise, see? he cried to the first mate. By Merinox, is that not a wisp I detect in the northeast quarter? By all the gods, I believe it is, said the mate, peering upward, seeing nothing but clear sky, but hoping that wishing would make the clouds come true. Ah, Merinox is good to his favorite worshipper, said Miron. He that loves thee shall profit. Book of the True Gods, Chapter 10, Verse 8. And Miranox knows I love him with compound interest. Yes, that he does, said the mate. But what is your plan? As soon as the last glow of the sun disappears completely from the horizon, so our silhouette won't be revealed, we'll swing and cut across their direct path of advance. We know that they'll be traveling fairly close together, hoping to catch up with us and blast us with crossfire. Well, we'll give them a chance, but we'll be gone before they can seize it. We'll go right between them in the dark and fire on both. By the time they're ready to reply, we'll have slipped on by. And then, he whooped, slapping his fat thigh, <laughs> they'll probably cannonade each other to Flinders, each thinking the other is us. <laughs> Minorox had better be with us, said the mate, paling. It'll take damn tight calculating and more than a bit of luck. We'll be going by dead reckoning. Not until we're almost on them will we see them, and if we're headed straight at them it'll be too late to avoid a collision. Room, smash, boom, we're done for. That's very true, but we're done for if we don't pull some trick like that. They'll have caught us by dawn, they can't outmaneuver us, and they've more combined gunfire. And though we'll fight like grass cats, we'll go down, and you know what'll happen then. The Vings don't take prisoners unless they're at the end of a cruise and going into port. We should have accepted the Duke's offer of a convoy of frigates, muttered the mate. Even one would have been enough to make the odds favor us. What? And lose half the profits of this voyage because we have to pay that robber Duke for the use of his warships? Have you lost your mind, mate? If I have, I'm not the only one, said the mate, turning into the wind, so his words were lost. But the helmsman heard him and reported the conversation later. In five minutes it was all over the ship. Sure, he's greedy guts himself, the crew said. But then we're his relatives. We know the value of a penny. And isn't the fat old darling the daring one, though? Who but a captain of the clan Affinican would think of such a trick and carry it through, too? And if he's such a money-grubber, why then wouldn't he be afraid to risk his vessel and cargo, not to mention his own precious blood? not to mention the even more precious blood of his relatives. No, Miron may be one-eyed and big-bellied and short of temper and wind, but he's the man to hold down the foredeck. Brother, dip me another glass from that barrel, and let's toast again the cool courage and hot avariciousness of Captain Miron, Master Merchant. Broadsuit, the plump little harpist with the effeminate manners, took his harp and began singing the song the clan loved the most, the story of how they, a hill tribe, had come down to the plains a generation ago, and how there they had crept into the windbreak of the city of Chultzaj, and stolen a great windroller, and how they had ever since been men of the grassy seas, of the vast flat Zormador.
and had sailed their stolen craft until it was destroyed in a great battle with a whole Rinkenspunger fleet, and how they had boarded a ship of the fleet and slain all the men and taken the women prisoners, and sailed off with the ship right through the astounded fleet, and how they had taken the women as slaves and bred children, and how the Affinican blood was now half Krinkenspruger, and that was where they got their blue eyes and how the clan now owned three big merchant ships, or had until two years ago when the other two rolled over the green horizon during the month of the oak and were never heard of again, but they'd come back some day with strange tales and holes brimming with jewels, and how the clan had sailed under that mighty, grasping, shrewd, lucky, religious man, Miron. Whatever else you could say about Grazut, you could not deny that he had a fine baritone. Green, listening to his voice rise from the deck far below, could vision the rise and fall and rise again of these people, and could appreciate why they were so arrogant and close-fisted and suspicious and brave. Indeed, if he had been born on this planet, he could have wanted no finer, more romantic, gypsy-ish life than that of a sailor on a wind-roller provided, that is, that he could get plenty of sleep. The boom of a cannon disturbed his reverie. He looked up just in time to see the ball appear at the end of its arc and flash by him. It was not enough to scare him, but watching it plow into the ground about twenty feet away from the starboard steering wheel made him realize what damage one lucky shot could do. However, the Ving did not try again. He was a canny pirate who knew better than to throw away ammunition. Doubtless he was hoping to panic the merchantmen into a frenzy of replies, powder-wasting and useless. Useless because the sun set just then, and in a few minutes dusk was gone and darkness was all around them. Miron didn't even bother to tell his men to hold their fire, since they wouldn't have dreamed of touching off the cannon until he gave the word. Instead he repeated that no light should be shown, and that the children must go below decks and must be kept quiet. No one was to make a noise. Then, casting one last glance at the positions of the pursuing craft, now rapidly dissolving into the night, he estimated the direction and strength of the wind. It was as it had been the day they set sail, an east wind dead astern, a good wind, pushing them along at eighteen miles an hour. Miron spoke in a soft voice to the first mate and the other officers, and they disappeared into the darkness shrouding the decks. They were giving pre-arranged orders, not by the customary bellowing through a megaphone, but by low voices and touches. While they directed the crew, Miron stood with bare feet upon the foredeck. He held a half-crouching posture, and acted as if he were detecting the moves of the invisible sailors by the vibrations of their activities running through the wood of the decks and the spars and the masks and up his feet. Miron was a fat nerve center that gathered in all the unspoken messages scattered everywhere through the body of the bird. He seemed to know exactly what he was doing, and if he hesitated or doubted because of the solid blackness around him, he gave the helmsman no sign. His voice was firm. Hold it steady. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now! Swing her hard a port. Hold her! Hold her! 
to green high up on the topmost spar of the foremast the turning about seemed an awful and unnatural deed he could feel the hull and with it his mast of course leaning over and over until his senses told him that they must inevitably capsize and send him crashing to the ground but his senses lied for though he seemed to fall forever the time came when the journey back toward an upright position began then he was sure he would keep falling the other way forever suddenly the sails fluttered the vessel had come into the dead spot where there was no wind acting upon her canvas then as her original impetus kept her going the canvas boomed seeming to his straining and oversensitive ears like cannon firing this time the wind was catching her from what was for her a completely unnatural direction from dead ahead as a result the sails filled out backwards and their middle portions pressed against the masts the roller came almost to a stop at once the rigging groaned and the masts themselves creaked loudly then they were bending backwards while the sailors clinging to them in the darkness swore under their breaths and clamped down desperately on their handholds gods said green what is he doing quiet said a nearby man the foretop captain muran is going to run her backwards green gasped but he made no further comment trying to visualize what a strange sight the bird of fortune must be and wishing it were daylight so he could see her he sympathized with the helmsman who had to act against their entire training it was bad enough strain for them to try to sail blindly between two vessels but to roll in reverse they would have to put the helm to port when their reflexes cried out to them to put it starboard and vice versa and no doubt miron was aware of this and was warning them about it every few seconds green began to see what was happening by now the bird was rolling on her former course but at a reduced rate because the sails bellowing against the masts would not offer as much surface to the wind therefore the ving vessels would by now be almost upon them since the merchant ship had also lost much ground in her maneuver in one or two minutes the ving would overtake them would for a short while ride side by side with them then would pass provided of course that miron had estimated correctly his speed and rate of curve in turning otherwise they might even now expect a crash from the foredeck as the bow of the ving caught them oh bookstore prayed the foretop captain steer us right else you lose your most devout worshipper miron bookstore green recalled was the god of madness suddenly a hand gripped green's shoulder it was the captain of the foretop don't you see them he said softly they're a blacker black than the night green strained his eyes was it his imagination or did he actually see something moving to his right and another something the hint of a hint moving to his left whatever it was roller or illusion miron must have also seen it his voice shattered the night into a thousand pieces and it was never again the same cannoneers fire suddenly it was as if fireflies had been hiding and had swarmed out at his command 
All along the rails little lights appeared. Green was startled, even though he knew that the punks had been concealed beneath blankets so that the veins would have no warning at all. Then the fireflies became long glowing worms as the fuses took flame. There was a great roar and the ship rocked. Iron demons belched flame. No sooner done than musketry broke out like a hot rash all over the ship. Green himself was part of this, blazing away at the vessel momentarily and dimly revealed by the light of the cannon fire. Darkness fell, but silence was gone. The men cheered, the decks trembled as the big wooden trains holding the cannon were run back to the ports from which they'd recoiled. As for the pirates, there was no answering fire. Not at first. They must have been taken completely by surprise. Miran shouted again. Again the big guns roared. Green, reloading his musket, found that he was bracing himself against a tendency to lean to the right. It was a few seconds before he could comprehend that the bird was turning in that direction even though it was still going backwards. "'Why is he doing that?' he shouted. "'Fool, we can't roll up the sails, stop, then set sail again. We'd be right where we started, sailing backwards. We have to turn while we have momentum, and how better to do that than reverse our maneuver? We'll swing around until we're headed in our original direction.' Green understood now. The Vings had passed them, therefore they were in no danger of collision with them, and they couldn't continue sailing backwards all night. The thing to do now would be to cut off at an angle so that at daybreak they'd be far from the pirates. At that moment cannon fire broke out to their left. The men aboard the bird refrained from cheering only because of Miran's threats to maroon them on the plain if they did anything to reveal their position. Nevertheless, they all bared their teeth in silent laughter. Crafty old Miron had sprung his best trap. As he'd hoped, the two pirates, unaware that their attacker was now behind them, were shooting each other. Let them bang away until they blow each other sky high, chortled the foretopmaster. Ha, 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 Miron, what a tale we'll have to tell on the taverns when we get to port. End of chapter 13